You're listening to The Rest of Us on The Rest of Us Podcast Network. The Rest of Us is currently funded by the donations of our listeners. If you would like to donate, please see our donation link in the description of this podcast. If you own or represent a business and are interested in sponsoring The Rest of Us, please contact us at pr at restofusmedia.com. Today on The Rest of Us, you and I will be discussing why we're all experts in something and why most of us are probably experts in a couple of things. Whether it's a popular at-home hobby, a little-known yet important function of your job, or whatever that thing is that you obsessively talk to your friends about, you're probably an expert and you might not even know it. So let's explore that. My name is Keith. I am a 12-year veteran of the United States Army, a workforce professional. So I've worked in the basically the public sector my entire career in various forms or fashions. My interests lie in, in helping people improve their lives and do better for themselves and each other. Thank you, Keith. Uh, my name is Jeff. I am a two-year Army veteran and a technologist and consultant in strategy and innovation and technology. Today on The Rest of Us, Jeff and I will be discussing uh, why we are all experts in something and why most of us are probably experts in a couple of things. I'm just wondering what exactly is an expert? Um, you hear the word get thrown around a lot. You know, the experts like to call each other out. Some people like to say, and you know, tell us what uh, an expert is or isn't or, or who we should or shouldn't listen to. But Jeff, what is an expert? <laughs> so uh, I pulled up Miriam Webster. You asked me this actually when we were talking about this the other day. What is an expert? That was a really good question. And uh, I guess I'm not an expert on words because I had no idea. And so I figured who is an expert on words? The dictionary, that's who I turned to. And their definition is one with a special skill or knowledge representing mastery of a particular subject. Or I didn't know this, uh, having involving or displaying special skill or knowledge derived from training or experience. And it's really kind of interesting now because looking at those two definitions, um, something we're about to talk about, which is one talks about the experience and having special needs, special needs, having special skills or, or knowledge derived from training, right? And the other one is basically representing mastery of a subject. So one is knowledge and one is on the job training. So education versus OJT, so to speak. Yeah, and it's obviously the same definition, One's, I need to display this to you, right? Yeah. I can demonstrable skill versus mastery, which kind of gets into the same question, right? Well, well what does mastery mean? Yeah, so so I guess it's the, the academic understanding of a topic versus the, uh, the professional application of, you know, you get what I'm saying. The... Uh, yeah. So, so the definition of mastery is the authority of a master or dominion, the upper hand in a contest or competition, aka superiority and ascendancy, or the possession or display of great skill or technique, which leads me to the samurai point, which I'll get to in a second, or skill or knowledge that makes one master on the subject. And so it's interesting to say great skill or technique. So I remember thinking about 
expertise and hearing i think it was a video we so were just, actually like we were talking about it i was thinking mm -hmm. about this i was going to text you this this morning and i think the value and the reason that we had in my crazy quantum information conspiracy theory brain the reason we couldn't talk for 15 years we had to connect our decision nodes <laughs> or yeah. entry and exit points again was that we had gained 15 years of experience right and so now we okay. could tell the same stories and come from the same direction but we were teaching each other's things which was and is the excitement it sounds to me like you are an expert at presentations i am so how much time how much time do you think how much time do you think you've put into presenting in your uh, your your career, your working life? Oh man, that's a great question. So I think more time than I ever care to. First, I would say probably five to ten hours a week goes into presentations and communication and getting messages across. So yeah, I guess that would make me an expert in presentations. So do you think you've done, you know, more than 10,000 hours of presentations? Yeah, that's basically five full-time years. And I've been doing this for 15 years. So maybe... And so, yeah, those numbers... 20,000, 30,000? 10,000 in 10, terms 000? of prep. I mean, I guess, like, being a consultant is all about how do you communicate and convey information in a relatable way. So it really is, like, here's what I heard from you. Here's how I processed this. Here's how I solved your problem. And so totally my job is largely around communication and presentations. But I think you just hit on a really interesting point, which is I didn't see myself as an expert in this. And you had to you had to feather it out of me, right? Like if you, you asked me five minutes ago and I said, I'm absolutely not an expert in this. And I think the other part of this is it's a, it's a bell curve. And I know with my team that I mentor, being an expert in presentations means that I get to take a, a step back and I get to help them become better presenters, right? As people learn the craft, the expertise and the leadership actually comes from the rear. And I think that's actually missed a lot in civilian life, right? It's firepower than leadership. Uh, and you lead from the rear, not the front. I don't know. I don't, I don't really know if I understand that. So you're saying in the civilian world, it's uh, shoot first, lead later? Hero complex. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. The person at the front is not the leader. You don't confuse the people at the front with the leader because the leader often gets assassinated and sometimes very literally, right? That if you look at everyone from tyrants that get assassinated to civil rights leaders, right? We can look at MLK. These people, John F. Kennedy, they get assassinated. And then the question becomes almost who's pulling the strings, but I'm hesitant to say that because that sounds very conspiratory. I mean it in the sense of good leadership leads from the rear because good leaders don't care who gets the credit and they also don't get assassinated, right? So you can continue your mission because you have first full view of the battlefield. That battlefield can be literal or it can be figurative. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, and you just always move. I don't know. That's what I know I was taught. I don't know if you were taught it, but as an infantryman, right? Firepower than leadership. I think, uh, I mean, we, we were taught, you know, lead, lead from the front or lead by example was always mm -hmm. a big thing, but it's, it's a different world in support and logistics where we're, we're expected to be get shot. <laughs> well, that's not necessarily true. Logisticians are expected to be technical experts, you know, soldiers first, right. But technical experts concurrently. 
yeah so like so what does that mean in terms of but what does that's a really good and interesting point because i think of what i'm talking about that's a really so here's something i think about more than i should think about which is these are the lessons that are taught of infantrymen and it's 80 percent casualties are acceptable and basically 20 to 40 percent kia right so basically in a fire team of five or you can survive, four people can get shot, one can die, and that mission's still a success on the books. And so that's a really high stress environment you're putting people in, which then leads. And so in that context, when you're trying to manage risk, firepower, then leadership makes sense, right? That you can't get your leadership killed all the time because that's not sustainable. And then from a support perspective, where you're not being put into constant present danger and not that infantry's uh in constant present danger but i think you bring up a really good point and that's that's a missing gap you have to explain it to me so i was always doing like logistic patrols and you know going out to where the infantrymen were and making sure that they had the right supplies to fight the war i guess the best way to describe it is like infantrymen go out and they look for a fight whereas uh logisticians <laughs> our mission is to support the fight we're, we're uh <laughs> as famously quoted in the ordinance song we are the man behind the man behind the gun right <laughs> this is uh, a fascinating conversation yeah so uh to kind of to wrap this all back into expertise we had to be experts in in a bunch of different things right we had to be combo experts and we had to be you know expert Experts at reacting to contact, right? Which is, uh, we had to know pieces and parts of everybody else's job and be able to apply them appropriately in the situation. I never had to go kick a door down, but uh, I still had to do PCCs and PCIs, you know, pre-combat checks and pre-combat inspections for my soldiers and make sure that they had the right equipment. You know, that that was part of my my job. I had to be an expert in knowing what they needed and, and making sure that they got to come home uh, that's fascinating like so this is this is genuinely fascinating because we were taught two different things from the same school right the u.s army and i remember from the day that i got at reception which is kind of like reception is like the holding cell before you go to basic training what you would talk about right there's the infantry and there's every job to support the infantry that was exactly it. We're ready to fight, right? Like uh, I am my country. It's the infantryman's creed, right? That I am my country's strength in war and her deterrent in peace. And I think of the ranger creed. I'll keep myself physically fit, morally straight, and mentally strong. For this is my debt to those who depend upon me. I'll carry more than my fair share of the task, whatever it may be, 100% and then some. But it's totally just a fucking grind in the sense that you can't do it without a team. And I think that's the part that gets missed. There's a lot of people that are always looking to fight, and you need those people to go be the strong ones. There has to be somebody that has to go out and basically be willing to take the fight to the people that need to be fought, whatever that means. And then there is an entire literal army of people behind them that make that happen. And it's kind of what we were just talking about, that the person in the front isn't the leader. The infantry is not the leader, right? They're stupid enough to go get into gunfights. <laughs> You're the smart one that didn't go sign up for a job that gets you shot. So well played. Or uh, at least shot as as much. Well, clarified. not saying your yeah, job we, wasn't dangerous. We didn't go out and, and look for conflict. 
you know, because we knew that the conflict was happening and whether we saw it or were part of it directly or we heard about it, you know, indirectly, we knew that it was going on. We understood that our, our mission was life or death, like a case of MREs or, you know, uh, you know, a pallet of ammo could mean the difference between guys having enough ammo to, to get through a firefight and those guys not coming home. Well, and likewise, it's the trust of going, I don't know if this is going to fucking work. I'm going to go jump out of this goddamn plane and hopefully everything from the time I left this from your parachute rigger, right? Like to, to walk through that journey real quick, right? Yeah. The, the Air Force is now on board. You have your parachute riggers, you have your armorers, yeah. you have your mechanics, like all that yeah. shit has to go right just to get one dude out of a fucking plane. It's crazy. Yeah. So let's talk about you know, that that PV2 or PFC who has to be an expert parachute rigger because your life depends on it as a you know, as an airborne infantryman. That's like an example of expertise from hands-on training. They went to a school to become a parachute rigger, but they didn't like go to college. They don't have a, a shiny new certificate to, you know, hang on the wall that says bachelors of science in parachute rigging. <laughs> They had um, one job and they did it well. Yeah. Yeah. And they had to, they didn't have a choice. And then think about all the jobs out there that do have a choice to do it well or not. You know, do you, you can't become an expert in something if you're not putting in maximum effort. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting point too, because I think it's a different way of how we approach expertise, right? So if the idea is that I need to become an expert in knife making, right, to make it like I think of cooking knives, Japanese cooking knives, like legit Japanese cooking knives. And they have, a, I think, a 10-year apprenticeship program where they basically have been handed these thousands of years of tradition from the samurai and, um, and everybody before them, right? It kind of blew my mind. I don't know if you knew this because I surely didn't. But the other day I saw a picture that was talking about, I think it's like the late 1800s, that a samurai could have sent a fax to somebody else in like another country because all three of these things that we tend to think of as like crazy different time periods all existed. And it was like the late 1800s or 1900s. Oh, anyway. it was uh, at, at some point in time, a samurai could have sent Abraham Lincoln a fax. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. And you're like, wow. It's like when learning that Van Gogh was like from the 60s. <laughs> you're not Van Gogh. I'm sorry, Picasso. Yeah, Picasso's from the 60s. The pyramids, right? When the pyramids were being built, there were still woolly mammoths walking around on Earth. Yeah. yeah. See how bad we are. at. <laughs> we're not experts in, in estimating time. Yeah. <laughs> but what I was uh, getting at is I think what's What's interesting about our parachute rigger example is they basically said, prove that you can do this one job, right? Here's this pyramid of skills you need to master to get at the top. And to do that, that really starts with like packing a parachute. And then if you're really good at that, we'll let you pack a parachute and then rig a static line. And if you're good at those two things, then you can pack a parachute, rig a static line and do like jump inspections. And if you're good at those two things, right, it continues to, to go on. And then that's how you knew that the guy at the top that was signing off on the work was an expert. That even if the people below him, he relied on his team to get jobs done, 
And as such, and since they operated as a team, you could trust the expertise of the parachute team with your life uh, and without any second guessing, right? It was never, I hope this pa parachute's packed right. You just assume it was. I think expertise matters because we put a lot of trust in it, right? That like, that is how we determine value. Value not being an economic term in this instance, but really being like, it's like a very human balance, right? How much do I need or want this thing versus how much value does it give me, right? If I'm buying, if I'm buying like a crappy table to use once because I'm going camping and I don't expect this thing to return, I'm, I'm shopping for the cheapest thing. It gives me a lot of value because I know I can leave this behind and it's cheap. I'm looking for a table that is the best table possible. And I want this to be an heirloom that I could pass down to my hypothetical, I guess your children. <laughs> I'll will you over my, my, my hypothetical table. Uh, right, that, that's a different problem to solve. And they both provide value, but they're providing value in different ways. And therefore, one of the many levers to pull in that conversation is how much do I value the expertise to make that table? So there's actually a, a movement in clothing companies right now where, you know, they're moving away from this, this mass production idea of getting people to buy more and more and more clothes. Uh, I want to say like Levi's is doing it. Basically heard about this on, I heard about this on NPR this morning. So, oh shit. Yeah. I thought, dude, no shit. Yeah. I thought you read this on my LinkedIn. I was are you talking <laughs> about Eon. Uh, no, I'm not. I was talking about, I literally heard a whole, it was like maybe a like 15 minute piece about uh, how there's a push in the clothing industry to move away from this you know, mass production thing that they're doing. So like companies like Levi's, they want to start buying back clothes and repairing them and reselling them or uh, giving totally... other people the ability to repair and resell their clothes. Right? I thought you were totally leading the witness. For the past day or two, I have been on a tirade and tangent about something called the Circular Product Data Protocol, which is <laughs> the super nerd edition of what you're talking about. <laughs> and it is exactly the same thing. It's brought by a nonprofit called Eon, and it's open source under the Creative Commons license. And the idea is, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I got no, so No, go ahead. Go excited. for it. Yeah. So from a nerd perspective, are you familiar with Circular Economies? Yes, maybe our listeners aren't. So Okay, so to like really simplify it, the idea of a circular economy is kind of the name implies. We have things that start as raw materials and they get made into things, whether those are blue jeans or clothes of some sort. And then obviously we use those clothes up and then we have to find a way to reuse them. So we recycle them and then we make them into new blue jeans. And if you can do that, it's kind of self-sustaining and we no longer need to harvest all of these raw materials and do all of these things that kind of drive uh, a lot of just consumerism. And, and so what's really cool about this is they become really win-win. So the problem has been that 20th century economics basically says we want to control as much of that supply chain as we can end to end. So if I'm Levi's and I, I'm not a 
device manufacturer, so I don't know, maybe 10% right for all I know, but we need cotton, we need dye, we need manufacturing plants, we need uh, sewing machines. It's, uh, so I think from a, a business and strategy perspective, you can also raise your entry barrier. You and I can't go build a car tomorrow because it's like really hard to enter that market, which is also what Tesla brought to market by saying, well, what if we just don't play by those rules? But anyway, I digress. My point is there wasn't a lot of value in horizontal integration because companies secured a lot of profit that way. If I could own every piece of the supply chain and or white label that supply chain, then I could kind of mass market and figure it out. And what's interesting from a circular economy is that's not really sustainable, right? That competes on GDP factors, but it's not sustainable in the most literal sense where this does all kinds of harm for things that we can't measure and monitor. Horizontal integration is the acquisition of a business operating at the same level of the value chain in the same industry. So that's, that's when one business absorbs other businesses that do the same thing. And then vertical integration is what we're talking about. Vertical integration is the, comb- the combination in one company of two or more stages of production normally operated by separate companies. And that's from uh, Oxford Languages uh, Dictionary. In diplomacy, there's this concept of rigid bipolarity, right? That we are, it's like the mutually assured destruction idea, right? If we can operate at extreme opposites, we always know what the other is thinking because it's literally the opposite of me, right? If I say this is red wine, you say it's white wine, there is no room to disagree. And we also always know each other's stance, which is like a low trust environment, which gets into a whole different thing. But I say that because golf spends a lot of time and money and energy promoting its partners, right? So you can get different grips and you can get different shafts and they don't OEM them. And then I think of GM and GM says everything's AC Delco, even though it's not AC Delco and it's made by a million different companies. And then like, it really is, I think the difference between 20th century economics versus this idea that I have to own everything and eat the elephant all at once. And you can't compete with me because I'm, I'm a juggernaut versus the concept of, uh, it's actually a German concept called the Mittelstadt. And it is the economic principle that got them out of World War II. So World War II ended and as it turns out, world not a fan of Germany <laughs> coming out of World War II. I wonder why. Like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> They had a lot of rebuilding to do. So yeah, yeah Mittelstadt was the idea that do one thing and do it well, right? I'm going to build bike chains and I'm only going to build bike chains and I'm going to build the best bike chains oh, in the world. Specialization. But they recovered from World War. Like mm-hmm. think of the economic power of Germany today. And the way that they did it was through their Mittelstadt economy, which was just being smaller. And we're seeing this again in the technology world where it's like API economies. And instead of trying to eat the elephant, like the GMs of the world that says, that say, I'm going to white label what it is that you do. So instead of slapping a 20% tariff on what it is that you do and calling it my own, it's the opposite of that, right? You do you and I'll do me and together we'll cooperate and we can actually bring a lot of value, which is a very un-American thing, which I say in the sense of American politics and culture have taught us that it's us versus them. It's a zero-sum game, right? And we see this in our politics. It's one party versus the other party. 
And those are basically your only choices. And we're competing for this very small sliver, right? It's really like plus or minus 5% when it comes down to it. And that's who holds all the power. And that's true of all uh, zero-sum games. To give the very quick definition of game theory, game theory is this theoretical game where, say, you and I, we've committed a crime. We robbed the bank. And you and I got caught. We got put in different rooms. And they come to us and they say, okay, Keith says this or Jeff says this. And we have a decision. This is why it's a dilemma. I can either turn you in and say, well, Keith, this is all Keith's idea. right? That bastard Keith, what a terrible human being. He told me to rob the bank. This is you the, can say this. The prisoner's prison. dilemma? Yeah, this is the prisoner's dilemma. No, But you're right. I'm on a, a rant and I appreciate the wrangling in. So I guess the short answer, um, we find ourselves in a dilemma when it comes to competition in, in business environments, which is that if I am competing against you and we're both making blue jeans, I don't really have like, we're, we're fighting about little things, but if I cooperate with you and say, I'm really good at building blue jeans and, and you're really good at recycling blue jeans, maybe we can work together and with that, we can get a lot of economies of scale, which is the solution of the, the prisoner's game. So what's fascinating about the actual solution to the prisoner's game is it's tit for tat, which basically it's, I forget which podcast I heard it on, but oh, I think it's probably Freakonomics Radio, if I had to guess. But they nicely bind the greatest solution to the prisoner's game ever, which is to be kind but provocable. Right. So I will help you. And if you like, if you punch me, I'm punching you back. Right. Which is basically all of game and war theory. And I say that because we can always help each other and you don't win. My job is to always help you first and you retaliate. I always lose. Uh, And so I can win the game, quote unquote, by not winning any round of the game because I did it through cooperation, which is a very different stance than America takes, which is isolationist. Okay, so. Do me a favor and tie all this back into what it means to be an expert. And then we'll go on to our next segment. Fair enough. It doesn't relate. We were off on to Eon <laughs> protocols. Well, yeah. So I, I think what really we were talking about was the experts will take, take their craft to the next level whenever they can. And they, you know, an expert, maybe wants to to build a legacy or they're passionate about what they do. So they, they become a master of it, whether it is clothing or knife making or preventing the next war, but we're fighting it. Right. I think, or yeah, or fighting. I'm not going down that. Yeah. Or fighting the next war, but you know, all of these things, they're, they're putting so much effort into it. They're, you know, they, they kind of generate counts twice. Right. So the idea is there's an equation Angela Duckworth. Yep. The book was by Angela Duckworth. It's called Grit, the Power of Passion and Perseverance. Uh, And the equation that Jeff was talking about is talent times effort equals skill. Skill times effort equals achievement. Yeah. And so when it comes to expertise, I think this is an interesting thing to unpack because what we're basically saying is, or what she's saying, I'm not saying it, is that there's a talent component, which is what I can naturally figure out. And then there's the ability to grind. You can outwork people, which is a fascinating part of expertise. That the idea that if you grind hard, 
you're you're going to be better than the person who didn't do anything right and likewise the opposite i think having studied like savantism child savants which is the part of the talent i have naturally gifted talents at whatever they might be because we're not all equal i can be good at something from the start and when it comes to savantism they don't learn the effort part because they're naturally gifted at it yeah and so a child prodigy that's eight as compared to their peer group of eight-year-old piano players is really fucking good and then when they become a and they don't practice or anything because they're gifted right that they don't need to do it and then when they become 20 or 30 year old piano players they are now average or below average because they didn't put in the grind and so they took for granted their talent so they they didn't they didn't earn the the part of expertise that comes from uh from doing the work the the hands-on experience i guess it's kind of like when if you had a choice of doctors do you want the brand new fresh out of med school doctor or do you want the guy that's been doing it for 10 years or so maybe not the old old doctor who's like a day before retirement but like the one that's still in the middle of his career you know that's the prisoner's dilemma the interesting part i know the va gets shit on a lot but they do a lot of things right actually um they have healthcare teams right so you can have younger doctors and you can have nurses and advanced nurse practitioners and doctors that can all work together as a care team which means that the lower level nurses can not only like triage and help things, but they can get the experience to become a doctor and vice versa. Uh, And so you're best leveraging your team and your expertise in a way that makes sense. One of the things that drives me crazy about expertise, it's a really great point. And the prisoner's dilemma becomes that silly question of entry-level job with five years experience. And without a focus on the end result and a focus on the ability to say, well, this is the outcome I care about and I don't care how we get there, right? This isn't about this explicit doctor or this explicit expert giving me this advice. You can be expert enough because that's the level of expertise that I need at the moment. We're not really doing anybody any favors. And there's also no path forward, so we get blocked. Right. And that's the dilemma. It's how do I become an expert in this if nobody gives me a chance to mentor me and help me become an expert in this? I'm willing to put in the grind. I'm willing to do the work. I'm willing to show up every day. I believe in this mission, but there's nobody that's willing to go, okay, you can come work for me. The rest of us is currently funded by the donations of our listeners. If you would like to donate, please see our donation link in the description of this podcast. If you own or represent a business and are interested in sponsoring, please contact us at PR at Restless Media.